0: Every life is a story. Some are bestsellers. I'm Chuck.
1: I'm Karen.
0: And this is Spy Stories. Who are you going to tell me about today, Karen?
1: Today we are going to learn about Josephine Guerrero. She was a World War II spy, and this is her story. Josephina, better known as Joey, entered the world on August 5, 1917, in a rural province outside of Manila. Her name meant God Shall Aid. Joey was a tiny, delicate girl with a giant amount of heart. She idolized Joan of Arc and would daydream scenarios where she would imitate the great heroine. The young girl was fervently religious, and she would pray constantly to grow up to be a nun. Tragically, both of her parents died when she was still a little girl. She was sent to live at Good Shepherd Convent, but suffered a terrible bout of tuberculosis that kept the nuns from being able to care for her. They just didn't have the resources. So, Joey was then taken in by her grandparents, who were well-respected owners of a coconut plantation. That'd be kind of fun, don't you think? Living at at a coconut plantation.
0: I'm not sure what would be especially fun about it, but okay.
1: Well, I mean, I don't know. It just sounds cool to live on a coconut plantation. Put the lime in the coconut and make you feel better. Isn't that how it goes? Something like that. I suppose. Well, anyway, with inheritance money left to her by her parents, she was sent to a Catholic school where all the wealthier families had their children educated. I guess the other coconut plantation people. Joey loved to learn, but was particularly drawn to the arts. She adored poetry, art, and especially music. She would close her eyes and drift away happily to her favorite piece, Brahms Symphony No. 1 in C Minor. The beloved movement made her soul soar. When the inheritance money ran out, young Josefina began working so that she could continue her expensive education. In high school, she was a well-loved athlete who took part in swimming, baseball, and basketball. She was also elected president of the student council. Joey was known for being well-balanced and interesting. She was graceful, but could also be fierce or silly. Her wonderful personality, combined with lovely looks, drew the attention of Renato Guerrero, a young man from a wealthy and well-known family who was finishing up medical school and was about to take a position as a doctor. On April 21, 1934, the 26-year-old Renato married the delicate 16-year-old Josefina. The couple moved into a nice home in Manila, Although Renato's work kept him away from home much more than he liked, he hired two live-in maids to keep his wife company and ensure her happiness. Because one live-in maid isn't enough when you're just a couple. You need two, right?
0: Well, one live-in maid can only do so much. Sometimes you need three or four.
1: Right, especially when they're only there to help one person who has no children. But that's okay. Life was hard for them, apparently, at this time. Well, two years later, Joey gave birth to a beautiful baby girl with somber brown eyes and a halo of chestnut hair and a very ready smile. The baby, named Cynthia, was a very happy little infant, and she brought great joy to her mother's life. Joey's life was a happy one. She spent her days delighting in her little girl, you know, she could do that since she had two live-in maids, and maintaining a happy home for Renato. Josephina was blissfully unaware of the growing chaos outside her door. Suddenly, life took an unexpected turn, and Joey began suffering excruciating headaches followed by debilitating fatigue. She lost her appetite, and her already petite frame began to get dangerously thin. Then, a small blemish appeared on her cheek. Its first appearance was that of a bug bite but the area began to grow despite Joey's best efforts at eradicating it. She finally went to her husband with her concerns, and Renato had his wife tested. The devastating results brought her to her knees. She had leprosy. She was a leper.
0: The earliest possible account of a disease that many scholars believe is leprosy appears in an Egyptian papyrus document written around 1550 B.C., Now, around 600 B.C., Indian writings describe a disease that resembles leprosy. In Europe, leprosy first appeared in the records of ancient Greece after the army of Alexander the Great came back from India and then Rome in 62 B.C., coinciding with the return of Pompey's troops from Asia Minor. In 1873, Dr. Gerard Hansen of Norway identified the germ that caused leprosy under a microscope. This discovery proved that leprosy was not hereditary.
1: Or a curse. Or a curse. Right?
0: (laughs) Yeah. The discovery also gave leprosy its correct name, Hansen's disease. Now, the bacteria grows very slowly and can take up to 20 years to manifest symptoms.
1: Yikes. Wow. The
0: disease can affect the nerves, skin, eyes, and lining of the nose. Now, usually the affected skin changes color. If untreated, hands and feet can be paralyzed, and fingers and toes can reabsorb themselves.
1: Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. They reabsorb themselves? Yes,
0: they can just be reabsorbed back into the hand. It's really, really, really ugly thing.
1: Wow. Mm.
0: Yeah. oh well, there are worse things that could be reabsorbed, I suppose.
1: <laughs> I guess that's true. Well, yeah. it
0: can also result in the loss of... Eyelashes and can cause nasal disfiguration. Cause your nose to really just come off.
1: Uh, It no, That's not. That's a myth that body parts like no, your nose it can
0: actually eat away at that cavity. Well, it can just and make it right, but it
1: doesn't. Yeah, but the whole myth of body parts just falling off doesn't really happen. I mean, the reason why like fingers and toes disappear is because they reabsorb into themselves, but. Don't you think it's kind of funny how that's put together? It's like, your fingers and toes could reabsorb themselves. Oh, and you may lose your eyelashes. <laughs> like, it it just seems like the eyelash thing is the least of your yeah, problems. Yeah, I would think
0: eyelashes would be... You could draw those back on. You can't really draw fingers back on.
1: Yeah. Do you know the one other animal that has leprosy, Chuck? I do not. It is the armadillo. And they actually caught it from us.
0: Wow, that's that's interesting. You know, about yeah. 150 people in the U.S. have Hansen's every year. About 250,000 really? worldwide. Yeah. Wow. And treatment that's nowadays consists of a combination of antibiotics, and the treatment can last up to two years, but you're usually cured. That's a
1: really long treatment. I mean, that's pretty. It's pretty intensive. Well, Josephine's only view of leprosy was through the lens of the Bible, and she despaired at the thought of being an unclean outcast. Renato took a more practical view, and he tried to encourage his young wife, assuring her that there were medications to help her symptoms and that a cure was possible. Joey tried to focus on these things, but was dealt the heartbreak of her life when she was told by the family doctor that she would have to be quarantined, meaning she could no longer live in the same home as her precious Cynthia, who was now five years old. Cynthia and Renato went to live with Renato's mother, and Joey was left all alone. Well, she still had her maids with her. Only the maids and the doctors knew her secret. Although Joey was beginning to fight a private battle, there was another battle that was starting to take place.
0: Yes, the Commonwealth of the Philippines was attacked on December 8th, 1941, nine hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor. The U.S. controlled the Philippines at the time and kept very important bases there. The American and Filipino combined army fought the Battle of Bataan from January 7th to April 9th. It was also during this time that the horrific Manila Massacre occurred. The battle ended with American surrender with seventy six thousand soldiers surrendering. This is the largest US surrender since the Civil War Battle of Harper's Ferry. And, wow. and that's a surrender that led to the Bataan Death March.
1: Right. And we talked a little bit more about that in um the episode about Claire Phillips, I believe, right? right? Yeah, we did. Yeah.
0: And The next battle was the Battle of Corregidor. That was a two-day battle on May 5th and 6th. Corregidor was an integral part to the Japanese because of its network of tunnels, defensive armaments, and fortifications. It was really the last obstacle for the Japanese in their quest for the Philippines.
1: Right. Well, with war ravaging the city, Joey's medicine became much harder to come by. Those who were afflicted with leprosy became terrified at what the physical manifestation of the disease meant for them because of how lepers had been treated in other wars. For example, in 1912, soldiers in southern China rounded up a leper colony made up of men, women, and children, forced them into a pit, shot them all, and burned the bodies. The community approved of the violent action like the community encouraged it so i mean it was really horrible then in 1937 in another chinese province lepers were promised an allowance of 10 cents to keep them from public begging but when someone would go and claim the money they were shot on sight so that was pretty pretty cruel it was not a real
0: good deal yeah that's how they get people for child support and stuff with super bowl tickets now People offer you things for free. Don't go pick them up.
1: No, no. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, Josephina was terrified that she would encounter the same fate. As it became more difficult for her to get the medicine she needed to keep her symptoms at bay, leprosy began to overtake her delicate body, marring her flesh and painfully stiffening her joints. But as she watched the violence surrounding her, she just couldn't sit back and do nothing. So she asked a friend she knew was involved in the resistance what she could do to help.
0: Well, and the Philippine resistance movement was large, raw, and very active. By the war's end, there were 277 different guerrilla resistance units made up of 260,000 people.
1: Wow. Wow. Well, because Josephine was not yet showing obvious manifestations of her afflictions in her face, she was able to act as a courier for different resistance groups. She would hide rolled up notes in her hair, socks, or in hollowed out fruit that she would carry in a basket. When the Japanese began to learn of some of the resistance tactics, they would begin pulling at the hair of women who were walking by. When this started to happen, Joey painstakingly hollowed out her shoes in order to hide contraband. At one point, Joey was asked to draw Japanese fortification and gun emplacements on the waterfront, which was really an impossible task since the area was so heavily guarded. It was then that Joey realized that she could make her affliction work for her, and she traveled through the checkpoints easily, wearing her veils and calling out, Unclean! Unclean! And ringing a bell as she walked. When she returned with her detailed drawings, her superiors were astonished to find that she was still alive. As the resistance grew, so did the amount of her missions.
0: Yes, and by August 1944, there were 18 million Filipinos living on the islands, and they were occupied by 400,000 Japanese forces. 180,000. One out of every hundred Filipinos were involved in resistance now by 1945 the number had ballooned to 250,000 and several of these resistance groups were american sponsored
1: right and like we talked about before when you were talking about the different guerrilla resistance groups they they would also war with each other so there was like an extra layer of conflict because it wasn't they were fighting against the japanese but some of them were fighting against each other too so It was very chaotic everywhere. Well, U.S. involvement began to change the landscape of the battle. One night, an engine outside her door woke Joey up. The noise was followed by an insistent knocking at the door. When she opened it, there was a Filipino man standing there along with an American soldier who told her that his name was Major Nicholson of the 11th Airborne. Joey knew that the name was likely an alias because everyone in the resistance went by a cover name. The American then informed her that she had unknowingly been working for him, and he praised her dangerous and effective work. The two men asked if they could leave some supplies at her home. Upon Joey's agreement, they brought what appeared to be two spare tires into the house. The tires were actually crude incendiary devices. If they were found, Joey would be tortured and killed. Joey was also given a map of crucial importance. It clearly identified buried landmines and other locations of vital Japanese resources. She would have to travel 35 miles north to deliver the map to the American headquarters at Kalimput, and she knew the Japanese were spread all along the way with factions of warring guerrilla groups. Her superior acknowledged the extreme danger and suggested that she go to confession and make a good act of contrition because she would most likely not be returning home. That's never something you want someone to say when you're about to go on a mission.
0: No, that's not what you want to hear. That's not what you want
1: to hear. No, definitely not. Well, Joey taped the map between her shoulder blades over her torn flesh and dressed inconspicuously. She went to confession and she planned her journey. Since vehicles were thoroughly searched, she thought it better to walk despite the sentry guards and multiple dangers. She was in the throes of her illness, but despite her extreme pain, she began her journey on the side of a two-lane highway north out of Manila. Due to her unclean status, Joey was able to avoid a search, but was eventually warned by a villager that there was open warfare ahead on the roadway, so Joey hired a banca, a canoe driver, to take an alternate route. As soon as they left, they began to be pursued by six vessels filled with river pirates.
0: Yeah, and these pirates were a pretty common thing starting back in the 1840s. But Spanish efforts to eradicate the pirate threats slowed down the problem in the 1900s. The problem picked up after the war because there was no longer security available to attack the problem, and the war efforts provided tempting supplies to loot.
1: Right, because as they had, they there were guns and all these other things available, and it was just too irresistible for the pirates. Pirates are always a problem, man. Yeah,
0: Arr! Arr! They'll loot everything.
1: <laughs> Des- Despite the pirates' speed and weaponry, Joey's driver was fearless and fast, and they actually made it to their destination ahead of the pirates. Okay, I'm having this mental image of like six giant pirate ships chasing down this little canoe that one dude is like.
0: Yeah, but they're dependent on the wind. The, they had to get all the guys up there blowing on the sails and everything else. You just got to <laughs> paddle that's real true.
1: quick. Right. That guy paddling must have been a paddling fool, man. Yeah. But
0: Well, you got six pirate reached, ships after you. You're going to paddle pretty fast.
1: That's true. That's, a, that's true. After reaching land, Joey walked the remaining eight and a half miles. The journey had been grueling and physically exhausting, and she was beyond grateful that it was finally over. Relief flooded her when she approached the building, but once inside, she was horrified to discover that the American headquarters had actually been moved back to Malos, the direction from that she had come from, so she had to turn and walk all the way back. By the time she arrived to the American, she was worn and weary, but she was still unable to rest. The American guards interrogated her heavily before she was allowed to see her contact, a Captain Blair, which was also an alias. The captain also subjected her to questioning, and once he was finally satisfied, he asked the young woman in front of him if she had a map. Joey gingerly removed the map and handed it to him. As he studied it, he swore. He then asked Joey to detail how she arrived with it. She shared all that she had been through on her journey, and he swore again, this time adding, By God, I never knew Filipino women had so much courage. Now, during the liberation of Manila, the city was in just complete destruction. Civilians, including children, were dragged into the Paco lumberyard and bayoneted. Dynamite was thrown into private buildings, causing massive explosions. By the time the 37th reached Bilibid Prison, some of the prisoners were so scared they tried to dig foxholes with raw, bleeding fingers. Joey walked among them all, very calm, almost serene, even as bullets nipped at her feet. She bound up the wounds of soldiers and civilians. She carried terrified children to safety. She prayed with the dying and tenderly closed the eyes of those who had already passed. She buried the dead whenever she could. She worked and worked, way past the point of exhaustion, until she felt blood pouring from her lips. It turned out to be a hemorrhage of the lungs. She had hoped this meant that she would soon die and be with her God, but this was not the case. A priest who had worked alongside her, Father Monahan, remarked, I have never seen a human being like Joey before.
0: The months after the Battle of Manila left every part of government in chaotic disarray. Water and sewer lines were wrecked. There was no electricity. 40% of the vital bridges across the islands were gone. The University of the Philippines, as well as Philippine General Hospital, were destroyed. For every American soldier killed, a hundred civilians were dead. When the numbers were finally tallied, after nearly four years, over a million Filipino lives had been lost. Next to Warsaw, Poland. Manila was the most ravaged casualty of the war.
1: Right. As the community began the achingly slow process of rebuilding, Joey took refuge with the Jesuit priests that she had worked with during the battle. She was not able to stay there long, though, because someone told of her presence, and due to her medical condition, authorities wanted her moved. The only place she could go was a leprosarium called Tala in Nova Liches. Joey's friend, Father Monahan visited the place before taking Joey there. He wrote of it later, "'Such a God or man-forsaken place I hope to never see again.'" At Tala, the afflicted received a weekly ration of food, not nearly enough, and the patients had to cook the food themselves with next to no resources. The patients also had to gather their own firewood and water for washing, laundering, and drinking. There was no running water or electricity." No disinfectants were provided. The camp was filthy, and the patients were treated as the absolute dregs of society. When Monahan returned, he did not mince words for Joey. He wanted the young woman to be prepared for the hell awaiting her. He did try to encourage her by saying now she had the opportunity to serve and could think of herself as a nun in a very needy convent. On the trip to the camp, Joey chatted and joked, and when they pulled up to the depressing buildings, Joey slowly surveyed the desolation surrounding her. She finally gave a gentle smile and said, So, Father, how do you like my convent? Although Joey did her best and was gifted with a nature that could find contentment through the worst of circumstances, her heart was broken over the conditions of her fellow patients and the squalor in which they barely existed. Finally, she requested a typewriter and eventually sat down to draft a letter. She chose to write to Marie Doshauer, a Milwaukee native who founded a worldwide Catholic organization to help lepers called Friends of Lepers. When Doshauer received the letter, she had it forwarded to Anne Page, an advocate and patient at the United States-only leprosarium, Carville, in Louisiana. It- Anne Page was an important patient at Carville, and she and her husband were a huge catalyst for change in the way people viewed Hansen's disease. Upon getting Joey's letter, she gathered much needed resources to send back to Tala and wrote Joey, encouraging her of the medical discoveries out there to help sufferers like themselves. Joey took the resources and made it her mission to improve the camp. She taught all the children there, she nursed all the patients, even helping one woman give birth. When the baby girl was born healthy, Joey convinced her husband, Renato, to adopt the child, naming her Jennifer. Although Joey rarely got to see Cynthia or Jennifer, they were always in her heart. Joey then appealed to the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration and eventually won the fight to have running water and electricity set up. This gave her the opportunity to clean and sanitize, which was a vital part of the treatment. When Joey learned that patients who passed were not buried in coffins, She made it her mission to build them herself. The coffins she crafted were simple and crude, but they were all that she could manage, and it was important to her that each human be given that small dignity. After making the Leprosorium a more acceptable place to be, Joey felt she could receive visitors, and every once in a while, Renato would bring Cynthia to see her mother. The baby girl Josephina, held in her arms was now growing tall and mature with a good sense of humor, but in a serious disposition. Sadly, though, the visits grew less and less. Joey was so focused on making positive change that she failed to realize the impact that she was making back in the States. To her shock, in May of 1948, Joey received a Presidential Medal of Freedom from the United States and was also honored with a medal from Cardinal Spellman for her Christian fortitude and concern for fellow sufferers. After receiving the medal from America, Joey was given the opportunity to move to Carville.
0: Carville was a plantation just south of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, the first starting housing patients in 1894. Now, at first, patients were kept in sweltering camp-like conditions, But things began to improve a little with the arrival of the nursing nuns of the Daughters of Charity. The nurses stayed at Carville for decades. In 1917, an act was passed to create a federal hospital for leprosy patients, and Carville became that hospital. Just like its earliest years, the first decades at the official leprosy hospital were very rough. Patients were under harsh conditions and were basically treated as prisoners, even to the degree that they were not allowed to vote. Things started to change in the 1940s, and in 1941, a very promising treatment for Hansen's disease called Proman showed up. Now, by 1947, Proman was a proven cure, although a slow one. By the late 40s and 50s, Carville residents even flourished and became an asset to the community. Treatment hospitals closed its doors in 1999, and the campus is now a National Guard post. Although a museum is located there, telling of the hospital's history.
1: During her time at Carville, Joey made the difficult decision to divorce Renato. She had not been in contact with him or the girls in years. In 1957, she married another Carville patient, a Vietnamese man named Alex Lau. That same year, incredible news came. Joey received the status of no clinical evidence of active leprosy. Finally, 15 years after her diagnosis, Josephina was able to live a life outside of confinement. Joey and her new husband moved to California, where she found work as a secretary and began attending college classes, eventually earning her bachelor's degree. Unfortunately, Alex's leprosy returned, and he had to go back to Carville, which resulted in another divorce. Despite Joey's sadness, she focused on her personal growth and education, She moved east and eventually earned a master's degree in Spanish literature from Middlebury College in Vermont. She then served several years in the newly established Peace Corps, teaching English and music. One day, a knock on Joey's door led to an amazing surprise. A young woman stood on the doorstep, an infant in her arms. The woman bore an uncanny resemblance to herself, and Joey felt tears flowing down her cheeks as she whispered her daughter's name. Cynthia was nervous. She only had vague memories of the visits with her mother, although in her entire life she had longed to know her better. Renato's family didn't want Cynthia in contact with her mother because they were extremely hurt that Joey filed for divorce from Renato. They simply didn't understand the emotional turmoil that Joey had gone through being separated from her family for so long conflicted, Cynthia had sought counsel on whether to contact her mother and was told about the psychological impacts of leprosy on a patient.
0: Yeah, when someone is afflicted with leprosy, they are suddenly forced to give up the people and the things they loved and are pushed to the outskirts of society all at once. Now, this kind of trauma obviously affects your brain. Those that Mm -hmm. are rejected are prone to reject even unconsciously, because they don't feel they can again take their previous place in society.
1: Exactly. Joey was thrilled to see her daughter, and she fell head over heels in love with her first grandchild. Sadly, during the visit, the baby got sick, and Cynthia decided that she needed to return home. She had a friend tell her mother goodbye for her because she couldn't bear to do it herself. Because Cynthia's hurt at her perceived abandonment ran so deep, Cynthia never saw her mother again. This incident broke Josephina in ways none of the other traumas in her life did. She changed her last name and lived a quiet life, shunning away public attention. She collected books to give away to friends' children. She pawned her medal of freedom for traveling money wherever she went, Africa, Paris, or London. She always looked for ways to serve. Finally, she settled in D.C., working at the Kennedy Center, where she could lose herself in her favorite music. On June 18, 1996, at age 78, Josephina passed from this life. No cardinals or generals were at her bedside. Her obituary made no mention of her heroic deeds. She died in chosen anonymity, her Joan of Arc spirit straining to hear the ever-nearing voice of God. Josefina Guerrero was a devout congregant, a lively athlete, young wife, joyful mother, leper, outcast, scout, courier, minister, nurse, teacher, advocate, student, translator, grandmother, patron of the arts, and she was a spy.
0: If you are enjoying the show and would like to discuss the spies or gain a little spy intel... Join us at the Spy Stories podcast group on Facebook. You can support the show by following us at Spy Stories on Twitter and Instagram. And help us get the word out by sharing the show, be that retweets or shares on Facebook or iTunes reviews.
1: The life of Joey Guerrero reminds us that physical frailty on the outside can mask a spirit of enormous strength. She reminds us to always seek out the beauty around us in spite of our pain. And sometimes the best way to heal ourselves is by healing others. Joey's life embodies what Harriet the Spy says. Life is a struggle, but a good spy gets in there and fights.
0: And Until next week, keep fighting.